You're listening to The Lodestar, the supply and logistics industry's leading source of insight. Our sponsor, Ascent, elevates the world of logistics through the passion of its 1,000-plus experts and their innovative solutions. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. As we wait for China to unshackle its people and global trade from COVID-19, we're not only looking at what happens on key trade lanes in the next weeks and months, we're asking our global supply chains as we've known them finished. Is a fundamental reset on the way? And who will be driving it if so? And then, because we should, we're looking at the illegal wildlife trade and how we can make sure you're not inadvertently part of it. Helping me steer a course today is TAC Index's Peyton Burnett, Dennis Grady, Vice President for Ocean Product at Ascent, Philippa Dyson from Traffic, a wildlife NGO, and a man that is not known for being short of an opinion. It's the founder and CEO of FreightWaves, Craig Fuller. If you think about the past 30 years, it's all largely been about markets and countries would orientate themselves to the Western uh, market system. It strikes me that what's happening in China with the recent lockdowns and what's happening in Russia and in other parts of the world, that that is no longer the case. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Yes, you heard it right. We're covering everything from how you can prevent yourself becoming accidentally co-opted in smuggling wildlife by criminal gangs to the possibility of globalization being rethought and rebuilt following COVID and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. No lack of ambition here. And we have so much more in between, including the build-up to the peak shipping season, the latest from China, and your shipping and air cargo freight rate updates with some special insight on the latter from TAC Index. It's all coming up, I promise. But as we embark on this trek, and I use the word trek as someone who wishes they'd done some training ahead of my 200-mile trek for Seafarers Charity, Ice One, starting 2nd of June. And by the way, if you can spare a dime, you can find this great cause on justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash 200 miles C to C. But back to my co-navigator today. It's his first appearance on the Lodestar podcast, but he's a veteran of freight media and the industry itself. It's the CEO and founder of FreightWaves, no less. Craig Fuller, thanks for joining me today. Mike, I'm honored to be here. Thanks for thinking of me. Craig, if we can just go straight into this and let's start with the existential, or maybe let's call it the existential threat to supply chains or the global trading system as as we know it. You argued recently in a very interesting opinion piece on FreightWaves that the post-World War II order that has enabled globalization and led to the, the creation of our industry to a degree, it needs a fundamental revamp that, you know, the end of peace is here, that we're going to have more disruption over the next decade. So my question to you is, we've had a lot of disruptions in the past. So what made you write this now? What was the final straw? Was it COVID, war in Ukraine? Well, I think it's all of that um, and everything in between. So we've seen, if you sort of think back to the past 40 years, China has really ascended from a really one of the most impoverished countries in the world to one of the most powerful countries in the world. So that's been happening for the past 40 years. At the same time, we've had sort of COVID has accelerated a lot of the other technology developments and sort of lifestyle developments and how people live and work really by almost a decade. So we've seen an acceleration in sort of the the way the world has worked for more than a decade. We had these sort of extremes of highs and lows over the past couple of years that have really stretched what's possible in the economy and what's possible with people. At the same time, you have a lot of sort of boiling geopolitical tensions that have existed for decades that are now becoming sort of, because of all of this stuff happening at once, those frictions are starting to play out. And it strikes me that the world as which we are now really entering, sort of starting, is quite different than the world that I grew up in, or at least spent the majority of my life in. I was 10 years old when the Berlin Wall fell and didn't really know as a sort of 
you know, the Cold War was ending or sort of the climatic moment that the Cold War existed when I was a, a young boy, I didn't know what it was like to live in a world where the markets are no longer the primary responsibility or the primary focus of governments. If you think about the past 30 years, it's all largely been about markets and countries would orientate themselves to the Western market system. It strikes me that what's happening in China with the recent lockdowns and what's happening in Russia and in other parts of the world, that that is no longer the case. It's very interesting what you say there. We had Michael Every from Rabobank on here. He talked about a return to mercantilism, the mercantilism that we saw sort of 19th century. And it's this zero sum trading game. And he, he said that there's a difference between values chain and a value chain. You've called it freedom trade. Is this about systems of government and the fact that maybe we can look through history and those 30 years that you reference or since the end of the Cold War, they were the blip, not the rest of history. We need, we need to rethink in the, in the nature of government and how we do that business. Yeah, it's hard for, for my generation. And, and Mike, I, I know that you're of my generation or we're of the same sort of age. The reality is that we've known the sort of unprecedented time in history where peace has been a reality, where markets have always expanded, where technology has sort of really shaped our lives. And a lot of the developments in the economy have largely been driven by technology and really affluence, uh, a lot of wealth that's been built throughout the world. The world has, it's an unusual period. I think it's hard for us to grasp that because that's most, mostly what we've known in our lives. But the reality is the world's always been fractioned. There's always been the have and have nots throughout the globe. And really Western capitalism, or some would say American capitalism, really operated quite different as a system in history than what we've seen historically. So I, I largely agree that we're entering a new time in history where call it mercantilism, sort of a, a function of colonialism is probably more the norm or something that sort of looks like that with a modern flair than what we've experienced over the last uh, 30 years. From a US business point of view, are we saying that in terms of how people look about this in the future, are we saying that China is no longer a reliable partner or a good actor, bearing in mind, say, for example, that you could argue that China has probably shown that it's sympathetic towards Russia over what's happening in Ukraine, and that you know, there's plenty of evidence, say, that it doesn't really accept the, the status quo and the system which has allowed it to rise to become the world's second largest economy. Is that what you, you're saying too? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about who has benefited or which country has benefited most from the post-Cold War world, it has been China. China has ascended without really having to spend a lot of money on military, without really having to sort of flex its muscles for the first part of its ascension. And it largely benefited from the Western capitalistic system. And it learned that if it was able to develop cheap products and sort of use our desire in the West for consumerisms to consume these products that were relatively cheap, that it could grow its wealth and grow the livelihoods and provide for its people at, at you know, an unprecedented and sort of unmatched level. I think what's happened in the last really decade, and particularly the last couple of years, is that China, particularly under Premier Xi, has said that it doesn't want to play under the rules sort of established by the American post-Cold War system. And it wants to play under something that's far more a Chinese version of it or an Eastern version of that system, where you can still have an autocratic communist government that's flexing its muscles throughout the world and is in many ways using its version of capitalism as a way to benefit itself, but it really gives very little back in terms of uh, reciprocating beyond cheap goods. So the world benefits greatly from China's manufacturing of cheap items and, and all the surplus that we've enjoyed. But what we give in return is we give up access to their markets. It's a one-way sort of you know, we export dollars to China and in return, they export goods 
And that worked for, for many, many years. But I think it's now a much riskier bet because they want to operate outside that system. We've seen what happened with the COVID lockdowns where they locked down and isolated their own people. But if you look back just to last year, they were stripping a lot of the a billionaire class or people that had done quite well by China standards and really global standards. They had stripped them a lot of their wealth. They've always had a pretty horrific track record on environmental and human rights policies. And so, but in the West, we've largely tolerated that. It was sort of an unwritten rule that as long as China continued to play this market system and deliver goods to us in the West, we would let them get away with some of the human rights abuses and some of the environmental record so long as they played by those rules. But what we've seen recently, and it's, it's been ascending, that that's no longer the case. And I think we have to ask ourselves, is it worth having cheap goods to really allow for that? And more importantly, can we depend on them? If you're running a supply chain, can you truly trust that your supply chain is going to work and operate in the way that you expect it? in a world where you have an autocratic government that doesn't care about the markets, but cares about power and control. I, I think it's interesting what you say there about the nature of the Chinese government. And I'll come back to this because I think some domestic politics in China might play a role in our peak season. But time will tell. But it's interesting to me that, as you said, we've got a communist government and we talk about things like rights. At the moment, we've got factory workers who are in these, they're calling them closed loops. They can't go home. I mean, they just stay in the factory so they don't catch COVID. I would also say, and maybe it's a case that China at the moment is exporting something else, um, uncertainty, perhaps. If you look at these lockdowns, which if I may, I'll just bring in for some more insight, Peyton Burness, who's the managing director of TAC Index. Peyton, hello once more. Hi, Mike. Thanks for coming on. We hear so much, Peyton, about Shanghai Pudong, the lack of cargo being flown out of there in recent weeks. But we've had lockdowns in something like 40 cities in China over the last month or so. What's the, the situation in general like across the board in China at the moment? I've been speaking with the uh, sort of traders on the market, and this kind of reflects in the TAT index pricing at the moment. I mean, currently the pricing is essentially flat with maybe a slight, slight downward trend uh, as the market is still relatively soft. But there is cautious optimism in the market with operations looking to return to near normalcy, hopefully towards the end of July, but we'll have to wait and see a bit. I think the governments both in China and in Hong Kong are obviously doing their best to try and de-restrict de COVID as much as possible. However, there are some factors that are dampening the market still. Uh, the two main things are essentially getting factory workers back to work. And secondly, is essentially a lack of raw materials in mainland China, which is affecting all the exports across China and Hong Kong. Now, with regards to raw materials, I, think, I believe my understanding is there's an import ban in raw materials, and that's now starting to be an issue. Now, hopefully with the de-restrictions going on, what, what the sentiment in the market is, is as long as this all gets resolved before the end of July, then we're looking at a, a fairly strong uh, Q4 as it gives factories enough time to essentially spuel up production. If it slips past the end of July, then that will sort of impact Q4. But as I said, the market is generally cautiously optimistic at, at this point. And Peyton, they're cautiously optimistic for that end of July period. Is that because they're already seeing some signs of de-restrictions or, or the, a, a softening of this COVID lockdown policy in China from President Xi? I mean, they'd have to do something to sort it out. Now, I hear that the Chinese press is saying 80% is back to operations. I would say it's more like 40%. But as said, hopefully things will start to return to normal. I mean, you're sort of seeing it somewhat. I think the Hong Kong, you know, government's doing a good job. They're particularly assisting Cathay. Just to give you some ideas, numbers, I, 
again, these are just like rough numbers, but I think at the moment, Cathay sort of operating, so 14 flights, Transpac, and next month they're increasing to 28 to 34 flights. So that's a big increase in their sort of network coverage. And again, the return to normalcy, my understanding is they're sort of under capacity at the moment on that market, but with these extra flights going on, they'll probably be over capacity. And so in the near term, you'll see another downward pressure on, on, on prices. I think Cathay is also sort of opening up to Europe. I think at the moment they do something like three flights a week, Hong Kong, Frankfurt, and, and next month they'll be opening Amsterdam, Charles de Gaulle and that type of thing. So that's just the general market. I think we'll just have to wait and see how things go. You know, with, with end of July being a, a good milestone to, to see how to see what's happening in the market. So a, a softening in the near term on say Asia, Europe, the Transpac lanes, but we've still got a fifth less global belly hole capacity and we've lost a lot of airspace and a fair amount of capacity due to war in Ukraine. What does that mean if, if your sources are correct about the end of July, what does that mean then if we've got this capacity constrained market? If we then see a big change in, in the demand situation, then. Well, I think there are two sides to this. One is the airlines returning to operational normalcy or close to the, to, to there. But on the other side is demand. And you have both the, you know, the Western common economies struggling somewhat. I think again, the sentiment in the market is that essentials will still fly. So that be chipsets and smartphones. But will there still be demand for non-essential goods? I, I think that the general outlook is they don't know. <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen, but they're different forces. Now we're seeing jet fuel spikes increasing even more quickly than crude prices. How is this being passed on by carriers to customers? Well, I think, I think you can see it just <laughs> a bit being pushed down the line to them. I mean, they were, they were looking at, I think the oil sort of floating between 110, 130, with maybe a short spike up to 160. Again, talking to the traders in the, in the market, I think they seem to have factored this in. Doesn't seem to bother them that much. I mean, earlier in the year, we did see shippers essentially dusting off their fuel surcharge clauses. And, um, I think those have sort of been sort of baked in to their contracts with the forwarders that so, uh, I mean, the, the fuel price is what it is. And I, I think at the end of the day, it is passed on to the consumer at, at the end. Peyton, just looking at those belly hole, that belly hole capacity that I mentioned there, we're about a fifth down on pre COVID levels. How is that playing out in terms of those intra Asia supply chains, that lack of travel and that lack of belly hole capacity in the market? Yeah, so passengers still aren't flying into mainland China and Hong Kong because they still have their quarantine restrictions in place. However, what you're seeing in Southeast Asia is again from Thailand, all the restrictions will be taken off from next month in June. And you're seeing a, a big surge in passenger numbers. So that, that will be across all those markets, including Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore and Malaysia. And so you'll be seeing belly hole capacity coming up much quicker in Southeast Asia and intra Southeast Asia, whilst out of China, they're still well behind. You're, you're also seeing a lot of the Chinese companies moving into Southeast Asia to do production on more sort of second tier products like uh, power banks and power adapters and Airbuds and the likes. So, so Southeast Asia is, let's say, opening up quicker than mainland China. We've been discussing the end of globalization or the restructuring of global supply chains in the face of what's being called a perfect storm or the three C's, which is COVID, climate change, and conflict in Ukraine. So, are you hearing from your sources any signs of people really looking at this? There's one theory about the re-regionalization of supply chains. Are you getting any sort of sense that that's already happening in terms of people trying to limit future risk or maybe not be exposed so much to China? Yes, that's correct. 
as I sort of stated before, there's a push to move some of the supply chains out. So as I said, Southeast Asia, you're getting manufacturing of you know, airbuds, power supplies uh, and the likes, but the actual smartphones and the sort of stuff that needs sophisticated manufacture is still done in China because you need the infrastructure in place to do that. Now, having said that, we can see that smartphones are now starting to be manufactured in Brazil. I think you're seeing both Samsung, Apple, Huawei moving production there. So that that's quite a, an interesting development. And you expect that to accelerate, do you? I think so. I mean, you don't want all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. So, Peyton Burnett, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Thank you, Mike. At Ascent, we enhance your business by keeping the global supply chain moving. Whether you are a Fortune 500 company or a small business, our logistics experts simplify your most complicated freight challenges. Let us move for you today. So, Craig, I, I mentioned earlier, I think that domestic politics might play a role. And we just heard there from Peyton that there's some optimism at the moment that maybe these lockdowns are, are opening opening up maybe this June, maybe July, but we've heard this already. But in November, there's Congress meets and, and President Xi's going for his third term. Does he want body bags or does he want, or does he want trade? I think that's, that's going to be a question for China. But... There's a couple of things I just want to put to you uh, today in Davos, or from Davos, actually, two different things. One, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has questioned the future of globalization, much like yourself. And Procter & Gamble, very interesting for me, they said that 90% of what they sell in future in Europe will be made in Europe. And essentially, that when you're talking about fast-moving goods, if it's not fast-moving, it's not fast-moving goods. So unless they can get to market quickly, they can't make their sale. Are you expecting other BCOs to follow suit? Yeah, I think we're going to see a trend. I think certain items where it's very low cost, highly commoditized items in terms of cheap manufacturing probably continues to, you know, China has become a dependable supplier and will continue to be a dependable supplier for some of those really cheap garment goods and stuff that's sort of non-differentiated. But they've also, if you think about what's happened over the past uh, couple of decades, particularly the last decade, is that China has become one of the world's manufacturing centers for things like pharmaceuticals. They've become one of the world's manufacturing center for things like automotive parts and even parts that go into aircraft. They've also been one of the world's manufacturing centers for electronics. I think those are the items that are most likely to shift because they're not easy to sort of commoditize. And because those supply chains are, there's so many components that go into those products and there a lot of the assembly of those items really uh, sort of drive other parts of the economy. I think it's something that uh, we'll end up seeing a lot of companies shift. Foxconn is opening plants throughout the Americas. We've also heard, and there's been recent reports, and I actually heard this from an insider a couple of weeks ago, is that Apple has made a decision to move a lot of its U.S.-bound manufacturing, so products coming to the United States, out of China. I think they recognize the risks of if you're producing products, and you know, Apple produces products or through its suppliers throughout the entire world. So whether we're talking Europe, the iPhone's going to Europe, it's going to Australia, it's going to Japan, but it's also going to the United States. And so they have so much product that they produce. The riskiest element of that is if there was a fractured relationship, and I'm talking a major fracture between China and the United States, perhaps a military conflict, I think the United States, to its own probably detriment, would use its power to really inflict damage to the Chinese economy and to the China-America trade. And if you're Apple, if you're Apple executives and you have this massive balance sheet, why not go ahead and take some of that manufacturing out of China and move it to places like Vietnam, India, even the Americas, because it just, it makes sense. We've also seen Samsung remove all of its uh, manufacturing from China. So we're seeing a movement of a lot of those electronic manufacturers to places like Vietnam, India, and back to the Americas. And I think that's going to continue to uh, take place. As you mentioned, P&G moving manufacturing to Europe. It means that really, I think we're, we're going to leave a system where 
the oceans have largely been uncontested since the end of the Cold War and perhaps all the way back to World War II. And we're now entering a system where you, you have to look at the oceans as being a much more contested part of global trade than it has been in the past. I'm sure any of those countries on the South China Sea would argue it already is very contested. <laughs> but if we could just turn back to the winners again of this re reglobalization or re regionalization, you've met, you said in the past that maybe the American South and the Midwest could benefit as well. Yeah, I think for certain products, you're going to see more manufacturing. You, the auto companies, the automotive companies, the car plants, if you go back to the 70s, the American car the almost the entire industry was U.S. sort of big three automotive. So you think about General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler were really the companies that produced cars in the United States. But if you fast forward, you know, 50, 60 years later, we're in a world where the manufacturers of cars in the United States are actually a large percent of the cars are foreign brands. I think over half the cars actually produced in the United States are not owned by American car companies. The, the cars are actually produced by companies like Volkswagen and Nissan and Toyota and Honda. They all have plants in the United States. And I think we, we did see this reorientation of moving manufacturing to the United States and now foreign automotive construction and building of cars is actually a major business. And they have had an enormous amount of success in building and producing cars. And I think we can see that we've seen Intel's recent announcement about building semiconductors back in the United States. It's an American company. We've seen the Foxconn announcement. I think we'll start to see more manufacturing shift to the U.S., where you have high-end products that are high margin, you can sort of afford where labor is a relatively low percent of the overall finished good. I think it makes sense to produce those. But I wouldn't also count Mexico out. I wouldn't count Brazil out and a lot of the Americas. There's a lot of untapped opportunity to really develop the Americas in terms of production and assembly to serve the North American continent. And I think there's a, a really substantial opportunity for the Americas to really rise and benefit from this frayed market, regardless of what happens with China. None of which will be great news to contain a shifted lines, yeah. um, which is where we must turn now. Uh, particularly, I want to go back to China and, and look at that, those uh, major east-west trades, which is a uh, perfect time, I think, to bring in Dennis Grady, who's the vice president for ocean product at Ascent, which is a US-based 3PL, which does all modes of transport, international forwarding, customs, air charters, you name it, they do it. Dennis, welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Hey, Mike, nice to be here. Dennis, before you joined us, we were discussing the ramifications of China relaxing its lockdowns and releasing this buildup of trade. And we've got a lot of potential cargo possibly waiting to leave. How are you guys at Ascend preparing for this? possible surge should it happen and, and i must add here that there's been quite a few policy announcements from china without anything really happening on the ground that's actually improved things so it's hard to know exactly what's going on right now yeah i mean we're hearing from our our folks over in asia that they're expecting to open up in in june i do expect that you know if it opens up there's a tremendous amount of freight that's going to be moving you know, we see the 200,060 TEU that's been reported that hasn't shipped in uh, April. If you look at May, you had that volumes in, it's going to be a dramatic amount of volume, probably going to take a couple of weeks to begin to ramp up. And then I think it's going to take several weeks to, uh, to absorb into the market. We would normally see peak volumes into Europe and the U S uh, from Asia in, in that third quarter, based on that timeline that you've just talked about there. What does that mean for that 2022 peak, you know, with those backlogs as well? What's that looking like in terms of volumes and, and congestion, I suppose? You think we have two forces at play here. You know, you've got the Shanghai volume that due to the lockdown, then we would, we would be into the traditional peak season as it's becoming. So it's hard to say if we're going to have a, a heavy peak or if it's going to be more of a traditional peak. But I mean, from what we see, I think the cargo volumes are going to ramp up. It's going to be a strong peak. There still seems to be a good amount of consumer demand for products like electronics, appliances, obviously automotive parts. 
So my view is that we're going to see a relatively healthy peak. And how do you see the container lines playing all, all of this these next few months? We've seen some blank sailings. What sort of strategy are you expecting from them? Uh, I think the carriers, you know, capacity management is, uh, is their main strategy. Today, if you look at some of the FAK rate levels, they're probably at or maybe even below some of the long-term contract rates. Uh, that's got to be a little bit worrisome for the, uh, for the carriers. I think, you know, Mike, when you look back to spring of 2020, we saw that the carriers really learned how to pull capacity out quickly, how to manage capacity. And I think that this is what they'll continue to do. If it's a soft peak, I think the blank sailings, they'll pull capacity. I think it's important for the carriers, for them to have a strong Q3 because it's going to move into Q4 and then it's going to move into next year's contract seasons. We've got new capacity coming on. So really, I think the carriers are, uh, become very adept at, uh, managing capacity. So when you're speaking to your customers, your, your forewarning them, I, I guess would be the right way that we're not entirely sure where rates are going to go exactly, but we're, we're not going to see any sort of major dip anytime soon. Is that what, where you're going with this? Yeah, I don't think we're going to see a big dip. I mean, I think we hit the heights, you know, and I hope that we don't see rates escalate again to where they were before, but I, I think that the carriers are going to be motivated to keep rate levels at or a little bit above where they're at today. And that's what we're telling our customers. Looking at that U.S. logistics system, certainly the ports, we've seen a bit of easing of congestion on the West Coast, and they've got that very effective queuing system there by all accounts, or at least it's improved things. Uh, we've also seen a lot more ships going into the East Coast. If we have a relatively strong peak, as you're suggesting in, the, in Q3, is the U.S. port and hinterland system really ready? I don't think so. I mean, I think if we have a really strong peak, Vessels are like whales. They travel in pods today. I think they've become very social hanging out on the West Coast for, uh, for months at an end. But uh, all kidding aside, I mean, you know, you're going to have this next wave of vessels, even though they've done a good job with the queuing system and they've made some improvements, there hasn't been tremendous functional change that would m make you believe that there's going to be anything different. So I think my estimation is, is that if it's a strong peak, we'll see some congestion again out at the West Coast, hopefully not as bad as it was before. And I definitely think we're going to see continued rail congestion. I mean, we're seeing that today. There's still issues in some of the major rails in Chicago. So again, I don't think anything fundamentally has changed that would stop that from happening. And hovering over all this as well, we have these West Coast dock worker negotiations ongoing between the PMA, which is the port interests and the union, which is the ILWU. Is this just an added element of risk from your point of view? Yeah, I mean, it's something that obviously we're, you know, we're reporting on every week when we do our market updates, making sure that customers understand that the contract is up. If we look back in history of 2002, 2012, we've seen where there's been some work stoppage and then obviously the strike. I think if we were to have a strike, it would be catastrophic for everybody. You know, obviously the ILWU is in a phenomenal position right now of strength. And we're hearing that automation is probably the big item that's being discussed. So we're, we're definitely keeping our eyes on it. It's extremely important to us. The old question, does automation create jobs or destroy them? That's the, the one no one can ever really answer. I think it depends where you start from. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, I think when you look at some other countries and the automation that's been implemented, you have to believe that some additional automation would help us with throughput here in the U.S. Well, we've covered poor productivity and where the U.S. resides on those global rankings, and it's not very high up at those ports, but that's another <laughs> subject, possibly for another day. Dennis Grady, uh, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Thank you, Mike. I enjoyed it. Have a good day. Uh, I had a chat with Zenith's Peter Sand before you came on, Craig, and he's a little skeptical about how much pent-up demand there is in Shanghai. He's expecting on those ocean shipping lanes that there'll be a limited impact on spot rates in the next few weeks, uh, and they're sticking at Zenitor with their view that demand has possibly turned the corner and that shippers have, have already priced in these disruptions and, and moved, moved cargo in advance wherever they could. 
maybe a lot of it has gone into the into the east coast but looking at that us in import market in the next few months do you think the demand is there is that what's your view on that and is the, the that us logistics network is it ready to cope with say for example as a bigger peak than pieces predicting I actually share the view that there's not going to be a surge or a tsunami of containers hit the U.S. port. So we we monitor through our Sonar product uh, volumes of containers booked. It's a relatively new offering, but it's looking at containers when they're booked or when they actually leave China before they hit the U.S. Uh, shores. And one of the reasons we built that was a lot of the U.S. freight demand and surges are based on what happens in the import market. So as freight leaves China and enters the United States, it creates a lot of demand on rail, intermodal, and truck. And so getting an advanced look and preview of that in situations like we're having right now with Shanghai and China becomes very valuable because you can start to look at what will that mean for U.S. domestic surface freight markets. And over the past couple of, uh, really the last two months, we've seen real softness in the U.S. trucking market. We've called a freight recession. Certainly what you're seeing is that has largely continued to play out. We've seen a drop in spot rates. We've seen uh, slowing freight volumes. But we've also seen just outside of freight, we've seen both Target, Walmart, and a number of retailers come out and talk about the fact that they're overstocked. They have too much inventory. And the inventory they have happened to be big ticket items. And that inventory is hanging over a, a lot of their networks in their warehouses. And because of that, they're not moving a lot of product between warehouses and distribution centers. And they're certainly not importing as much as they uh, were last year. And so we think that what is likely to happen is China's to resume production and it will be a marginal level of increase over what we see today. It will take longer to sort of heal and there won't be a surge of containers that come into the United States into the surface networks. And it will be something that really, when we look back at it in a year from now, it will be a relatively inconsequential event in terms of demand in the U.S. trucking market. That is our view today. Could very well change next week. Uh, you know, China is very different than the United States. We have incredible visibility of U.S. freight demand. It's very difficult to know what is actually happening on the ground in China. And so that view could change. But from where I sit today, I don't think there's going to be a tsunami of containers. And I don't think that's going to put a lot of pressure on U.S. freight demand. Craig, just briefly, I, I saw an interview you gave and I, it made me think when I was at a conference last week in Rotterdam, Breakbook Europe, there was a, a talk there about recruitment and seemed to be a bit of shock amongst some of the, the people speaking and the delegates about people wanting these days to work from home, even after all these lockdowns. And it's sort of become this new normal. And you mentioned it earlier, in fact, is, is there a reason for skepticism in the freight industry? You know, do the people think that they're going to lose some sort of camaraderie if the office is empty? Is that what it is? I think you have to bifurcate the types of businesses that can operate really well in a work from home environment. And so let's, let's take manufacturing off of it, which is a no, you can't even do that. And so certain jobs just don't even work, but it was taking the white collar jobs in logistics where was freight forwarding as an example, or freight brokerage and, and truck freight brokerage is another example. It is difficult because you have so many parties that touch those transactions. You have a lot of coordination. You have a lot of exceptions you have to deal with, probably more so in freight forwarding than even truck brokerage, where you typically have a, it's three or four parties may touch a transaction in a truck freight, whereas on the international side, you may have a dozen different parties that are, have to be coordinated. It's harder to do that virtually than it is in the office. And so I think I'm not surprised by the skepticism in the logistics industry and why people believe that it's going to be hard to pull off a work from home environment. A lot of my friends that run companies and very successful logistics companies have mandated work in the office and they believe fundamentally it's required for their business. And their argument is I can get a lot more done so much quicker if the people are right next to me because of that organic osmosis that takes place than if the remote. Now you take a business, Mike, like Lodestar or Freightwaves or a software business where we, we tend as a business to collaborate with big ideas, but we then go back and do our work. You're doing a podcast. It's easy to do virtually this podcast. Or if you're writing an article, 
a lot of that is silo work. In fact, I prefer complete silence and no distractions when I'm writing. And so I think those types of jobs, it's very easy to be worked from anywhere. Whereas if you're working in the logistics industry and you have a lot of parties that have to sort of touch a piece of freight, then you have a lot of exceptions that have to be dealt with and time is critical and just coordinating all those parties is, 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 really, is really hard, especially when you're in an environment where you are dependent upon people and you need to get their attention. And let's all admit that if you send a Slack message to somebody for something that's critical, perhaps it's a shipment that's being delayed or there's been a claim against it or something's happening, having to wait uh, for that person to get back, even if it's five minutes, is quite different when they're on a screen than they're across the room because you can tell they're on the phone. Or at worst case, you can go hit them over the head. You can walk over and bop them in the head and say, what's up with this? That is a different environment. And I think that's why certain jobs will never truly be worked from anywhere. But I think for my business, and I suspect Lodestar and others that sort of deal in this, we're, we're not dealing with an environment where we have to be together at once. I think that's the right type of work environment. And that's really the way that people want to work and live in the future. I, I think you're right. We're going to see a lot of change. And I, and I think I can also speak for all the rest of the people on the Lodestone that say they're more than happy if I just stay in my silo. Um, <laughs> Likewise. I, yes. Finally, you've uh, very eloquently laid out your vision of what this, well, the future workplace, but also what uh, the future of US supply chains, global supply chains, is or what it might look like. How is all this change in our industry? You know, what, what's all, we're talking about a transformation, aren't we? Who wins? Well, you know, there's going to be, and any change is going to be winners and losers. I think um, this is my view, is I think the winners are going to be those. So on a national level, on a country level, it's going to be those countries that perhaps uh, are in other parts of the world that like, like the Americas, perhaps even Africa has an opportunity to sort of ascend as a manufacturing center. Other parts of Asia that are outside of the Chinese, you know, directly sort of regional neighbors of China. Vietnam has been a big winner. I think India has opportunities, uh, places like Indonesia and Malaysia as well. Singapore, just look at what's happened to Hong Kong. There was always this rivalry between Hong Kong and Singapore about what is the expat center or sort of the future of finance and the future of sort of the global financial center for the East. And it was it was always unclear as to who was actually winning. Hong Kong had the geographic advantage of being close to China and being a part of the Chinese system in some way. And Singapore had the advantage of not being close to China and not being a part of the Chinese system. And I think it was hard to make, you could make the case either way. I think it's very clear that Singapore has an enormous advantage being geographically distant, but also orientated more to the Western economies, but still sits sort of at the intersection of one of the world's most important trade lanes and one of the most important uh, uh, parts of, of sort of global trade. So I think Singapore becomes a massive winner. I think the Americas and Africa become massive winners. And I think Domestic manufacturing in the United States become winners. I'm, you know, I'm incredibly bullish on the Americas because I think we have the benefit of geography. You know, we did, there's no real neighbor in the Americas that can challenge the United States and the U.S. will protect the Americas, even if it sort of lets China have some level of power. And even if it lets sort of supports Europe, it is going to protect the Americas. And I think in many ways, that creates a peace dividend for those other countries to really rise up and, and benefit greatly from it. How about from a company point of view, who wins if we've got a, a different type of uh, supply chain, if we've got a series of regional supply chains, does that favor the, the big, the big e-tailers, the big, the Amazons of this world, the, the integrators, the big forwarders, or, or does this, the little guy still got a chance? Well, I think the forwarders always win. Now, they may not be moving ocean freight, but they've got to move freight from, say, Brazil to the United States, and they've got to do customs clearing for that. I think the intermediaries have an advantage because they really aren't stuck with assets and asset-orientated. I think the ocean container lines are probably have seen their best days, at least where I sit. I think that's going to be a challenge. I think the surface freight networks between rail and truck will do much better in this environment just because the freight will be moving over land versus over the oceans. I think air freight, because you'll still have some supply chains because of the expedience of needing to get stuff out and the dependency of that, will continue to do well. 
I think ocean containers are probably the big losers. And then I think the warehouse operators are actually going to be big winners because now you're going to want and need buffer stock, not in China, but in the United States or in Europe, because you'll have to make sure you have product where in the past we've had the advantage of, we've always had buffer, buffer's important in supply chains, but that buffer has been in China, has been in Asia. And now that buffer will need to be in the United States or in Europe. And because of it, it means that warehouse operators will will need that. Craig Fuller, thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate you having me. Now, an issue that's been close to my heart for many years, and which is, in my humble opinion, woefully underreported in the trade media and, in fact, in the media in general. The pangolin is now the most illegally trafficked mammal, even before the rhino horn. According to the UNODC, wildlife crime now ranks alongside human trafficking and drug dealing in terms of annual profit. Illegal trade in, in wildlife species is one of the largest organized crime markets in the world. It's a multi-billion dollar market. When we often talk in our industry about climate or environmental, social and governance policy, we tend to talk about transitioning to non-fossil fuels. But one of the things we often forget is biodiversity. And of course, the planet is a much less rich place when wild animals and carbon-storing habitats disappear from ecosystems that are vital for climate change mitigation, or animals are, are made extinct and lost forever. And our industry plays a part in this, often unknowingly, because most of the illegal trade in wildlife moves by sea and by air, much like every other product we discuss on this podcast. It's a global trade, and this smuggling is often controlled by criminal groups, but these guys don't have it all their own way because people out there are investigating these groups as well as working with the international bodies that set the trading rules to help stamp this out. I'm delighted we can now hear from Philippa Dyson from Traffic, which is a leading non-governmental organization working globally on the trade in wild animals and plants in the context of both biodiversity conservation and sustainable development. Hello, Philippa. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. Now, Philippa, you're the coordinator of transport sector engagement at Traffic. Can you tell me and our listeners how damaging this illegal trade in wildlife is, please? So to give you an idea of the scale of the illegal wildlife trade, it's a transnational organized crime thought to be worth between seven and $23 billion a year. That's not including illegal timber, which by itself is another 50 to $150 billion a year. But these are just estimates as being an illegal activity. There's no way to know the full extent, and it's likely to be much higher than that. So it's causing rapid declines in many species, including the more well-known uh, affected species like elephants and rhinos, and then also pangolins as well as many species of birds, mammals, reptiles, fish, even spiders and scorpions. And then as an example of how intensive it is, in 2019, over 90 tonnes of pangolin scales were seized from 10 containers. And pangolin scales, if you haven't heard of pangolins, they're sort of small to medium-sized mammals. And pangolin scales are really light things. They're like pieces of cardboard. So 90 tons of that, you can't imagine how many animals that is. So they're declining dramatically. And then the sort of horrible side of it is that it's not just a conservation issue, it's an animal welfare issue as well, as people can smuggle live animals in the cruelest conditions. But then, so that's just the biodiversity and welfare issue. The illegal wildlife trade is also damaging for people. So it's linked to corruption. It exploits and probably worsens any weaknesses in the supply chain. It funds organized criminal networks. And in countries where wildlife tourism 
them is a major part of their economy. The poaching of these animals takes huge amounts of revenue away from these countries. And then finally, wildlife is thought to be the source of about 60% of emerging infectious diseases. So it's really not good to be trading in these illegally. Traffickers don't consider the hygiene aspects, the safety, sanitary requirements. So it's really not good to be trading in wildlife illegally because the hygiene and sanitary requirements aren't considered. And then in terms of how it's conducted, it's thought that about between 70 and 90% of illegal wildlife products are trafficked by sea, which is largely due to the volume of timber that's trafficked. And traffickers smuggle the products in with other goods in containers, forging the documentation and so on. So as the maritime sector is the main channel by which the illegal trade is occurring, we believe that the sector has a responsibility to take action against it. Philippa, is this a global issue or is this uh, happening on specific air and sea routes? Yeah, it's very much a completely global issue. The common routes have tended to be from East Africa to Asia, maybe by the Middle East quite often, but the trade is truly global. It happens on almost every continent in the world, apart from Antarctica. But when we've engaged with transport companies in the past, they're often surprised as they assume it's just Africa to Asia, but it affects companies right across the world. And traffickers are very clever and they can take very obscure routes to get from A to B in order to avoid detection. And they evolve their techniques rapidly as law enforcement capacity increases. So really any country might be affected by it. But then in terms of trafficking by sea or by air, this depends on the type of product. So, for example, live animals for the illegal pet trade or zoos are usually trafficked by air because it's a faster way to travel. Whereas non-perishable goods and goods that are being trafficked in high volumes, such as timber or ivory or pangolin scales, they usually go by sea. Um, and I think sea is the preferred method because there are lower chances of detection. Philippa, what are pangolin scales used for? Well, they're, they're believed in the East to have medicinal properties to help with various ailments, although they have no proven medicinal value. And so they're typically dried up or ground into powder, which then people might take as a pill. Earlier this month, and this is a bit of a mouthful because this how these uh, this bureaucracies like to frame things perhaps it was the 46th meeting of the facilitation committee fal 46 of the international maritime organization which is a un body based in london it adopted new guidelines for the prevention and suppression of the smuggling of wildlife on ships engaged in international maritime traffic now there is i said it's just about why is this significant and how does it help um, yeah, it's a real mouthful, isn't it? So the development of the guidelines was led by the government of Kenya with the working group of organisations, including Traffic, WWF and others. And it is very significant as it's the first time that the issue has been recognised in the maritime sector at this level. And so the adoption of the guidelines by the IMO sends a really strong message to the maritime sector about the need to engage on the issue and also the level of importance that they place on it. The guidelines are aimed at government agencies, public authorities and also the private sector, including shippers, freight forwarders and others. And they're highlighting measures to prevent, detect and report wildlife trafficking with an emphasis on due diligence, responsibility sharing and cooperation among all the stakeholders along the supply chain. They also include links to a range of resources, such as a new online course developed by FIATA for freight forwarders and a compendium of red flags, which uh, Traffic developed, which has some really good information on 
the key indicators of wildlife trafficking that maritime stakeholders can look out for. So the guidelines are a real game changer. They're putting guidance and resources at people's fingertips so the stakeholders can help to do their bit to protect nature as well as protect their employees and businesses from corruption and economic and security risks and just strengthen the overall integrity of their supply chains. Um, But I do want to note that we're not asking the private sector to act as law enforcement themselves. It's more about strengthening what they do already, strengthening risk prevention, targeting and communications, incorporating wildlife trafficking considerations into their practices to then support law enforcement to do their job. And what would your advice be to anyone in shipping or the transport business about what they can do if they're alerted maybe about a possible smuggling operation? Is there someone they can contact or report this to? Yeah, well, every country would be different. And the sort of first step would be to map out uh, the different stakeholders and processes taken at that airport but they would need to identify the appropriate authority at the port to report to and pass that information on to their staff. There might also be national whistleblowing systems and anonymous reporting hotlines for the police. And then there are uh, Interpol and national central bureaus of each country which can connect the law enforcement activities internationally, which is important as it's an international crime. But a really important thing is for people to just familiarise themselves with the issue because traffic wildlife is hard to find when it's within the container. So it's really critical for staff to be aware of the red flags so that they know when to inspect. For example, when the shipping route seems incongruous with the goods being declared or there's vague information on the documents or discrepancies between the information given and then the weight or the appearance of the shipment. Philippa, you've also worked on the Roots Partnership, uh, rootspartnership.org, for the last six years with IATA and various airlines. Can you tell me what progress you've been making there? Yeah, this was a multi-sector partnership funded by the US government um, and our industry partners included IATA as well as Airports Council International. And we were working with them to strengthen action against wildlife trafficking in air transport. So in air transport, traffickers smuggle wildlife and products in many different ways. So in their hand luggage or baggage, in cargo or under their clothes. It might include uh, bird's eggs, fish. Someone once even tried to smuggle 17 live hummingbirds in his underpants. So really imaginative methods. So there are a lot of points for intervention by air transport staff. And through our work with IATA and ACI and others, we've seen a huge positive change in the last six years. Many airlines and airports have integrated wildlife trafficking prevention into their staff training programs. They've strengthened their policies, as you said, set up reporting mechanisms, and they're also influencing their own supply chains as well through incorporating criteria on wildlife trafficking prevention in vendor contracts, for example. And just recently, which was a major achievement for um, ACI and IATA as part of Roots, ICAO approved the adoption of a new recommended practice on wildlife trafficking prevention, which is a really big step forward for long-term action and of normalisation of engagement on the issue. And then thinking about air cargo in particular, some airlines have stopped exporting cargo from certain countries that are known to be the source of cargo-based wildlife trafficking. And then other things that they can do is to ensure that they're adhering to the IATA live animals regulations, which themselves aim to ensure compliance with CITES, which is the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. So when traffickers try to smuggle illegal wildlife in with legal species. And again, it's critical to train staff on the ground so that they're aware of the red flags 
of wildlife trafficking in air cargo, which might be air holes in boxes or strange flight routings or, again, dubious documentation. And so the Roots Partnership, we've developed a whole range of guidance and training materials, um, which you can find on, on the website or um, through traffic on traffic's website. You mentioned there, Philip, that some airlines have stopped exporting cargo from certain countries known to be the source of cargo-based wildlife tracking, trafficking. Can you name a few of those countries for me, please? So the source countries are often African countries where there might be high rates of corruption, but traffickers do tend to sort of go multiple times with one particular airline while they know that they're not being detected. And then once they do start to be detected, they then shift their patterns. So it really changes over time, which airlines traffickers use and from which country. Philippa Dyson, thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast and please keep up the good work for us all. Thank you very much, Mike. It's been a pleasure. A big thank you to Ascent, the sponsors of this podcast. A shout out to TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider and Zenita, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon. Mm-hmm.